The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Amen. Thank you, Steve, for that. We're back in the book of 1 Timothy this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm going to preach the second part of our two-part sermons on this. We got one sermon. To, we got a sermon today. We got two more left in First Timothy, and then we'll parachute into another sermon series. First uh, Timothy chapter six. I'm going to jump off in verse 12b. That's where we'll go this morning. Let me just say really quickly that if you weren't here on Friday night, you missed one of the most uh, beautiful things that I've seen since I've been here. This place was swarming with kids. We had a fall festival, a hayride that uh, happened here on Friday night by the work of Donna, your children's director, and a lot of the people. There was somewhere between, my, my estimation, somewhere between two and 300 people here in this churchyard. There were people all over the place, and it was awesome. There was joy. There was happiness. There was love. There was, it just was everything that you want in the Christian community. So I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for Donna and all the people that work extremely hard to put that together. So this is the house of God. It's for the people of God, but it's also for the people of this community. And so we were able to share with them in a joyous, uh, in a joyous moment on Friday night. First Timothy chapter six, um, um, chapter six and verse 12a through 14 this morning. Let's pray really quick and then we'll jump off into the text. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you be gracious to us this morning as we wrestle with the identity, the idea of eternity and its impact upon our lives by way of the Holy Spirit who is our helper to illuminate the truth. May you give us eyes to see and hearts to live out the precious truths of the faith. I pray this morning for Pastor Greg. I pray I lift him up especially before you and place him before you, that you will be with him in this very moment and as he prepares this very moment in the next days ahead for yet another chapter in his journey. So I pray for him. I pray for him before this congregation. I pray for him before Christ Jesus who is his strength in the days ahead, Father. Give him peace of mind, give him strength in uncertainty, and may we serve him well over the next nine months. Amen and amen. Last week, we addressed the first part of this passage and began to understand the nature of the specific charge that Paul utilized to close out, that utilizes to close out this letter to Timothy here. In verse 11 of chapter 6, which we dealt with last week, I told you that Paul shifts the entire letter towards this descent at the end to close out this letter, and he utilizes this space as a charge of sorts to Timothy. He utilizes this space as a charge to Timothy. Last week, we addressed the far, first part of this charge here in verses 11, where Paul admonishes Timothy to flee a false gospel that's manifested itself in the idea of unhealthy pursuit of wealth, the unhealthy pursuit of money and and being discontent. He commands him to live a life of contentment. And I told you there was three verbs he used in this section of scripture here. He told him to flee and pursue and fight. So right before verses 11 and 12, Paul addresses those who do not preach the gospel. And he's saying that this preaching of a false gospel is due in part to a lack of contentment. A lack of contentment. The bigger issue that he's dealing with there was a $5 word called Gnosticism. It's a false gospel. It's just an outright heresy for you theologically minded people. I gave you a phrase that I thought paraphrased what Timothy, what Paul was telling Timothy here. I gave you this phrase. I said, the man of God, he rapidly escapes what the godless man reaches for. The man of God, he rapidly escapes what the godless man reaches for. And so Timothy is called to escape the things of godlessness. 
It's not a physical escape. Paul's not telling him to leave the church. It's a spiritual or a theological or how about this, a desire-based escape that he tells Timothy. You'll remember I gave you two reasons for the need for fleeing. The need for fleeing is because sin is strong and man is weak. Our hands, they are dirty. And Timothy is being called to be aware of this. The combination of these two factors, they appeal to our desire to be independent from God. That's what false teaching does. Or you could say that Paul is calling Timothy, I read this on Thursday, uh, Wednesday morning, that Paul is calling Timothy to be a Proverbs twenty three seventeen man, to let not your heart envy the way of sinners, but fear the Lord. So there's a fight and a pursuit that incurs as a result of the desire to be independent of God. This false teaching, it appeals to that desire. It appeals to that desire. And Paul is quick to charge Timothy with the antidote. He's quick to give him the antidote for dealing with this. It's to pursue or fight for righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. We talked about those briefly last week. Paul, remember Paul and Timothy's ministry is, is set in the larger context of great risk. It's set in a culture and a climate that there are real enemies to the gospel it's the same sort of climate that you and I operate in outside of this church in some I challenged you based upon this passage to think carefully about what it means to earn the title of man of God or woman of God it's whether or not you can pursue these things whether you not you can pursue righteousness godliness faith love gentleness and steadfastness in places where the gospel is void Places that look like your workplace, places that look like your job, places that look like the marketplace that surround you by your families and friends that are opposed to the gospel. It's whether or not you can live out the gospel in the midst of a hostile culture. That is what Timothy is getting here. But there's more to the fight. There's always more to the fight. And so what Paul does here is he has this unique way of extending the directive right into these beautiful points of doctrine that are mixed with application. And that's what he does this morning. That's what theologians do. And so Paul is only doing what he's called to do. So to the text, verse 12, chapter 6, verse 12b, it says this. The apostle Paul writes, he says, take hold of eternal life, take hold of the eternal life, to which you were called and about which you have made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you, he's speaking to Timothy here, in the presence of God who gives life to all things. That's an important phrase. We're going to deal with that this morning. And of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unsustained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's review here. He tells Timothy to flee sin, and then he tells him to pursue and fight these wonderful aspects of the Christian faith, elements that are action-based. Remember, we don't live the Christian faith on our heels. We don't live the Christian faith on our heels. The Christian faith is not lived out on our heels. We pursue and fight for righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. It doesn't happen by sitting around on your hands. It doesn't happen by sitting around on your hands. Then he leads Timothy right into this next statement of directive. Here the, here the state, we're gonna sit down in this statement, hear it again. He says, take hold of the eternal life. Take hold to the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession. So this phrase, take hold of eternal life, look at this phrase. When you read this phrase at the concluding charge to Timothy here, you think, what in the world is Paul talking about? What is he talking about here? You think this and he says, okay, he tells Timothy to flee sin. Check, I got that. He tell, that makes sense to me. He tells him to pursue and fight for righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness in the context of a crazy world. Check, that makes sense to me. That's easy to understand. Then he may, and then he tells him to grip eternity. 
Then he tells them to get a grip on eternity. So wait a minute, how am I supposed to grab hold of eternity? What under heaven does it mean to grab hold of eternal life? And why is this part of this? Paul is taking something that's sort of abstract, this idea of eternity, and he's, t- and he's giving Timothy a charge to take hold of it in the present. <laughs> and you read this and you go, this doesn't make any sense to me at all. It's, it's, it's important that we understand what Paul is saying here. It's important that we understand what Paul is saying here because each of us as Christians, we're called to take hold of eternity now in the midst of our fight to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. We're called to to grab this in in the moment here. Are you tracking with me? We're called to grab hold of eternity. Paul is clarifying, this is important, he's clarifying how we are to pursue and fight for righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness in a broken world. How do we accomplish that? We take hold of eternity. What does that mean? I think there's two senses in which we can apply this phrase this morning. There's more than that, but there's two that I'm just gonna give us that I think are applicable to us, and I think they'll be helpful to us this morning. In other words, I think the reason that Paul utilizes this phrase is because here's the title of your sermon, is because there are present impacts to eternal life. Eternity has present impacts upon you. I think there are two primary ways in which the eternal life impacts the current here today. There's more than this. There's a lot more than this, but this is what we're going to deal with today. And so I want to be practical and helpful for us this morning. Reason number one, I think he's doing this. I first, I think to lay hold of eternity, I think it means that it, it means that you live with an eternal perspective. That's what Paul's getting at here. You live with a real understanding that this life is not the pinnacle of anything. This life is not the pinnacle of anything. Be honest with you, it's as bad as it gets. You should take comfort in that. You'll recall that, 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 that prior to this, earlier in the chapter, Paul reminds Timothy, he says to him, that you, you, you brought nothing into this world, you can take nothing out. So it's sort of a reality check in some way. And all throughout the letter, Paul is building towards this statement on eternity. He's building towards this statement on eternity all throughout the book. And he's telling Timothy, he's saying, you live a life that's beyond here. You're not of this kingdom. Jesus did this well. Jesus did this masterfully in his life and his time on earth. I'll show you that later on. The reality is that the world is fleeting and the world, things are moving at warp speed. And Timothy needed this. I need this. You need this. We need the reality check. We need the reality check. The war is much more than physical. The war is mental. And Paul is telling, here, t- telling him here to get his head right. You military folks, you understand what I'm talking about. The mental, the mental aspect of warfare, it's everything. It's everything. And Paul is telling Timothy here to get his head right. He's pointing Timothy towards the end, toward the great reward in order to remind him of what's important on earth. So not only is eternal life literally everlasting life, is not only is that re- the reward of the Christian faith, it has present impacts for us now. And it's impact upon this life because it helps us navigate a world full of false teachers and it keeps things in perspective for us. It keeps things in perspective of for us. Reflection upon eternity functions as a reality check for the Christian. It functions as a reality check for the Christian. It gives you perspective on what really matters and it it frees you to live beyond yourself. It frees you to live a life, to fight against the raging war of false teachers like Paul and Timothy did. It gives you the perspective to leave it all on the table. It gives you the perspective to leave it all on the table take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. 
This week, I had the opportunity to sit down with the student minister, Jacob Benton. Mr. Jacob Benton is sitting over here to your left. Jacob is a delight to me. We spend time together every week. He is building out a student ministry here that we're excited about. We're blessed to have him here this week. We talk about, we talk about doctrine. We talk about what the student ministry will look like. He has, the, he has the right to ask me anything he wants to on Wednesdays. Anything he wants to ask me, I'm an open book to him. And so this week, we began a larger discussion about the challenges that are facing the younger generation here. There's challenges of identity. There's challenges of social media pressures. There's substance abuse amongst people in age groups that are stunning to me. These challenges are real. The generation behind you are facing things that I never had to face. I grew up in a community where everybody I ran to was moderately at some level Judeo-Christian. If they didn't live it out in a church, they at least carried the morals and values of it. That's not the world we live in, friends. And so there's pressures all around and they're real. So look at me. The world that you are fighting within right now, it longs to bury the generations behind you. It longs to bury them. Somebody is going to raise your children. Someone will raise your children. Somebody's going to do it. It's either going to be you as parents under the support of the ministry in this church, or it's going to be the false teachers outside of these walls. That's the reality to it. And what, Jacob is a priority to me. You want to know why Jacob's a priority to me? Jacob's a priority to me because the fight is raging everywhere. This is no joke. We're losing the battle on every possible front. And the church is called to stand up in the middle of this world, to show itself, to take hold of eternity, to take seriously the call to fight for righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, to fight for the gospel. The church of Jesus Christ is the only place that has the answers to this stuff. I believe that. We're taking on water at every possible angle, at every possible front, and this church is called to stand up and take control and to invest in the generations to come. So I say to you, Grace, on that, Ashley, wake up. Get it in perspective. Leave it on the table. Are you living with eternity in mind? Are you living with eternity in mind? The second reason that I think Paul uses this phrase here is that he's he's reminding us our need for the gospel. He's reminding us that eternity impacts our current life and that it reminds us for a need of the gospel. Timothy and every other Christian that's read this letter probably since he wrote it needed to be reminded of how much we we need the gospel. We live in this time, I tell you this all the time, we live in this life of tension. We live in the already but not yet. Jesus has come, he's come, he's fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system. He came, he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross for the sins of many, he rose victorious over death on the third day and he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. That's the gospel, we have the gospel. He's arrived, he's fulfilled the Old Testament. He's ushered in the gospel, he's ushered in the beginning of eternal life. By way of the gospel, you're children of God, and by faith, you've, had, you've, called to been, you've called to grab hold of eternity. You'll die a first death. You'll die a first death if you're a child of God, but you will not die a second. You will not die a second. And do you understand that God's redemption of you on this earth means that you've already grabbed some of eternity by way of the gospel? If you're a child of God, do you realize that's a reality to you? Paul is simply reminding Timothy about the gospel. He's simply reminding him that eternity, made possible by Jesus Christ, is here by way of the gospel. He's charging Timothy to lay hold of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of a raging war so that he might be reminded of that great song, The Foretaste of Glory Divine. 
He's reminding him of that foretaste of glory divine. He's reminding him about the need for the gospel in order to, uh, order to empower him. He's reminding Timothy, here it is again, that there are present impacts of eternal life. Eternity has come to you by way of the gospel. Lay hold of eternity. Get a grip on the gospel in order that you might fight with boldness and courage in this world. The gospel is what makes eternity a reality to you. It's what makes it present. It's what makes eternity accessible to us now even in this life, and you need it every day more and more and more and more. I needed it this week. I needed this so bad this week. How do I know that that's what Paul is doing in this text? Because he makes reference to a good confession. Look at the next part of this, part of this scripture here. He says, Take hold of eternal life that you were called to and about which you made it. Here it is, a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. What is a good confession? A good confession is what Timothy's profession of faith, that's what Paul is alluding to here, is his profession of faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ and his subsequent baptism. Baptism is the visual confession of faith, whereas in you're telling everyone that's present that you have repented and believed and now you have taken hold of eternal life through Christ Jesus. Timothy is being reminded of that here. He's being reminded, he's, Paul is calling him to reflect upon the gospel. Very simply, that's what he's doing here. The confession, this is important, the confession isn't private. That's why we do baptism. It's not a private confession. It's a public confession. It's a call to boldly proclaim in the midst of Timothy's enemies. Timothy is in all-out war against the world around him and with Paul. And Paul is reminding him of the open proclamation that he made, the boldness he lived with in a society that is void of the gospel. There's a boldness to this passage. And then Paul makes an important move in the text here. Look at verse 13, 14. This is so good. This might be the best part of this passage here. He says, I charge you. He's giving Timothy a charge. This is, this is so good to me. He says, I charge you in the presence of, presence of God who gives, you life, who gives life to all things. He says, God gives life to all things. And of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession too. In light of the eternal perspective, the reality check, the reminder of the gospel, Paul charges Timothy to keep this eternal perspective on the office or the calling he holds. He's telling Timothy to do that. He's telling him, he's charging him that, that, that you're supposed to take hold of the entire counsel of the word of God, not just part of it. The same, this is the same charge that's given to you and I as Christians. It's the same charge that's given to us. It's the same charge that I'm giving you this morning. But what is so sweet about all of this, look at the text. What's so sweet about all of this is that you're not called to do it on your own. You're not called to do it on your own. Are you supposed to live with an eternal perspective? Yes. Are you called to flee sin? Yes. Are you called to wage war in a world that is void of the gospel? Yes. Are you called to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness in the midst of a city, in the midst of a community of false teaching? Yes. But here's the beauty of it. You are not called to do it alone. You're not called to do it upon your own power. Here's the statement. You're called to it under the sustaining power of God by way of example of Jesus Christ. This is the source of your strength. This is the sustaining power of God by way of the example of Jesus Christ. And this is likely the most important piece of scripture in this, in my opinion, in this two-part part, uh, sermon series I'm doing here. You're called to let, grab hold of eternity, but it's not your ability in the fight. You're called to do something, but there's a sustainer to it. So there's two things that Paul's doing here. He says that God who gives life to everything, he's calling God the great, he's calling God the great preserver. God is the preserver of all things. This is the first part of this. 
the preserver of the charge is God Almighty. He lives a lot. He gives life to all things. And I think that Paul plants this. I think he, Paul plants God's unilateral action. That's a big word. God's one-sided action. God doesn't need your help. <laughs> He's a big God. He does what he wants. He does what he wants as he pleases. He plants God's unilateral action into this thing because he's speaking to God's ability to preserve. He's speaking to God's ability to preserve. The notion of God's preservation is all over the Bible. Matter of fact, the entire Bible in some ways is one large story of salvation through judgment wherein God consistently redeems a rebellious people. This is a constant theme. There may be no clearer place of this in the entire Bible than Isaiah. Isaiah is a marvelous book. Isaiah is probably one of my favorite books in the entire Bible. Flip with me really quickly if you have a Bible to Isaiah chapter 43. I don't think there's any clear place in scripture that we can see how God preserves, how he, how, how he preserves. The name Isaiah literally means salvation of Yahweh, salvation of God. And so over and over in the book of Isaiah, God preserves his people in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of their rebellion. Isaiah chapter 43, we're going to look at verses 8 through 13 here, but let's get it up to speed. God has chosen a particular people, a particular people group, the Israelites. He's chosen them to be his servant. So what's going on in Isaiah largely. I'm just going to give you the 30,000 foot. And then you get to the last part of chapter 42 that you'll see there, really verses 18 through 25. Isaiah issues, this is important, he issues an indictment on the people of Israel because of their inability to serve him. 18 through 25 is really some tough words of judgment there in verse chapter, chapter 43. You can read those later on. Israel was set on a mission to be the Lord's servant, yet they were found blind. They were found in a failure. They were found in bondage, but God in his goodness, he's a God of forgiveness. He's a God of graciousness. And look at what he does in chapter 43, verses 8 and 9. This is, this is some incredible piece of scripture. I love the book of Isaiah. Look at what he does in 8 and 9. This is what God says in his goodness, his graciousness. He claims, he cl- in the midst of their own rebellion, look at me, God claims them still as his own people, even in their failure. Here, verses 8 and 9. He says, bring out the people who are blind. He's speaking of the, uh, the Israelites here. He's speaking of Israel. He's saying, yet they have eyes who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gathered together and the peoples assemble. Who, who among them can declare these things and show us the former things? Declare this and show us the former things. Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say it is true. This is God's indictment on them. He's claiming them. You can see he's pulling them back out. And then God in, in, verses, in verses 11 through 13, which is so important here, this is where I'm gonna look at. In 11 through 13, God, this is, this is so good to me. God, he gives a testimony to his own ability to preserve them. In verses, in verses 10 through 13 here, God flexes his muscles a little bit. You see God preserves in the middle, midst of the fight. Hear these words. He says, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. These are, these are marvelous statements of his, just, of his power. He says, I declare and save and proclaimed when there, was no, when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God, and therefore I am he, and there is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? You hear the power of God in there? You see God preserves in the middle of the fight. The charge to Timothy is one of perseverance, but it's dependent upon the God who claims, this is so good, the God who claims us as his own. Even in the midst of failure, even in the midst of failure, God will look and say, I am the one that works, who can reverse it? He's a big God. He's a big God. And so the charge in our life to be a servant of God is upheld not by our own power, but by the power of God Almighty, the power of the boundless I am. This is the God of scriptures. 
This is the God we bow to. This is the God we serve. So Jesus, God is our preserver. And then Paul drops back to 1 Timothy. Paul drops, you'll see in this text here, he drops Jesus as an example in here. So God is our preserver and Jesus Christ is the example of the charge. The charge to Timothy, the charge to us is to not only persevere by the power of God, but it's modeled through Christ Jesus. So he gives us Jesus here as the model. Jesus knew that the confession, this is so good, that Jesus knew that the confession of his deity, the confession of himself being the son of God in the midst of a hostile world, he knew it would cost him his life. He knew it would cost him his life. He never evaded the danger. He boldly and trustfully committed himself to God who is gracious and everlasting and who will raise his children from the dead. Hear the exchange here that, that Paul gives us. Hear the exchange here that John gives us in the Gospel of John. I'm gonna give you the exchange with Pilate that Paul references here. John chapter 18, verse 33 to 37. We're flipping around a little bit this morning, but I think this is so important to hear. So this is what Paul is referencing here. Hear the exchange between Pilate and Jesus Christ here in chapter 18 of John, verses 33 through 37. Jesus is smart. Jesus is brilliant. Hear how brilliant Jesus is here. Verse 33, so Pilate entered the headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? He's giving Jesus a a chance to proclaim his innocence. He says, are you the king of the Jews? If you come next week, I'll talk to you about what it means for Jesus to be king. That's next week. Anyway, so Jesus answered and said, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered him, I am a Jew. Am I a Jew? He asked him, am I a Jew? And he's, he's, it's rhetorical. He's saying, your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, this is so brilliant. He answers, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. He indicts himself. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. He's handing himself over to the Jews. He's giving himself to death here. He says, but my kingdom is not from this world. And then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Amen. Everyone everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate said to him, what is the truth? And Jesus never replied. Jesus never replies to him. Do you hear the eternity in Jesus's words here? He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Do you hear the eternal perspective that he gives in his response? It was emotional to me when I read it this week. Jesus is the model. He's not only ushering, he's so dynamic. Jesus is so dynamic. He's not only ushering in the kingdom of God, he's not only ushering in the kingdom of God, he's modeling what it looks like to live it out. You see that? There's two things going on in this text. He's not only ushering it in, he's literally God himself ushering in the kingdom of God. He's modeling that for us. It's so dynamic. It's incredible to me. And in the midst of the greatest battle of his life, Jesus stands up in the middle of it. And the strength he exhibited in this passage is remarkable. 
It's a remarkable strength. Jesus is multidimensional. He's dynamic. He's, the only re- he's not only the reason the kingdom is coming to earth, but he sets the model. So how do I live with an eternal perspective? Jesus shows us this. On the precipice of his own death, he, in the precipice of his own le- death, he lived with courage and faithfulness. He's facing the cross. He knows he's facing the cross. In the, in the battle, in this extreme warfare, there's battling, he's battling the Jewish world all around him. The weight of sin, the, literally the weight of the entire world of sin is upon his shoulders. They're pressing in on his shoulder and he responds to Pilate with a confession of the gospel. <laughs> he responds to Pilate with a confession of the gospel. He held forth eternity. Jesus Christ stood up in the middle of darkness and took hold of eternal life. He stood up in the middle of darkness and he held forth a confession of faith. Are you willing are you willing to do the same? You're willing to do the same. I went to seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. One of the first classes I took, um, Southern Seminary, is a, it's a, it's a marvelous place to me. I thank God for his work there, and God's been so kind to me to let me study there. But I took a class that was on Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, some other Old Testament books. The, the scholar that taught the class has had a huge influence on me, the way I think through the Bible. I love his, I love his writing. So I go into class that day. I, I walk in there. And at the back of the class, there's a gentleman. He's probably, by my estimation, when I walked in the room, he's probably 80s, somewhere in his 80s. And so I come, I come from, uh, my mom and daddy told me to respect people that age. And so when I walk in a room and I see people sitting at the back of the room, they're in their 80s, I go sit with them. That's the people I want to, I want to sit with. And so I walk to the back of the room and I sit down beside him and um, it just comes natural to me to connect with people. It's really kind of the reason I love history because I, I want to know from whence I came. But anyway, I walk in there and I sit down beside him. We have this normal exchange. And I, I kind of got a weird mind in some ways. <laughs> I notice things a lot of times in rooms that people don't notice. And so I sit down beside him and I look at him and on his right hand, he's got a ring and it's, it's I mean, it's, it's smooth. It's so old, it's smooth. And sometimes I'm like an attorney. I'll ask people questions I know the answer to already. And I looked at him and I said, tell me about that ring. I knew what the ring was. It was a Clemson ring. He was a Clemson man. <laughs> and he said, it's a, it's a Clemson ring. I, grew, I, grew, I graduated from this place called Clemson. I said, I, you did, huh? I said, you probably graduated from there when it was a military college. And he looked at me stunned. He was thinking, who is this guy? <laughs> and so he graduated there in the 50s. He, he fought in a war. He was a surgeon in Louisville for decades. He grew up close to here, actually. We really just hit it off. He was a surgeon. I think he was actually a dean in one of the medical schools up there for a while. And so we were making conversation about that. And we really became wonderful friends throughout the semester. We really did I mean he just he's one of those kind of guys that when you're around and you'll know these people when you're around them when he talks you shut your mouth (laughs) and you do whatever he tells you to do and so I did a lot of listening I didn't do a lot of talking I did a lot of listening when I was around him and I asked him one day I said what are you doing in this class why are you here he reaches under the table and he pulls out this hard-sided briefcase and he sits it on top of the table he flips the two latches on it opens up the briefcase briefcase, and he pulls his picture out and he hands it to me. And then it's a lady. She's a lady. She wasn't a woman. Hands me this picture and I look at it and he said, that was my wife. He said, she was my everything. And she passed away two years ago. And he said, she was everything to me 
we spent our entire letter, life together. He said, I miss her more than words can explain. And he looked at me and he said, I'm trying to finish strong in her absence. I'm trying to finish strong. And he said, you know what I figured? He said, I figured I might start taking a couple classes here at this seminary. And then he made a statement that I could have run through that brick wall right there afterwards. He made a statement. He said, and maybe I can be a help to the next generation. 88 years old. I could have run through that brick wall right there. You see, here's a man that understands what it means to stand up in the midst of the battle. Here's a man that lives with eternity in mind. He understands well, he understands well the present impact of eternal life. The purpose of the fight is desirable, God in his glory. The leader of the fight is gracious and everlasting Jesus Christ in the reward of the fight. The reward of the fight is splendid. It's life eternal. God, give us strength to take seriously the present impacts of eternal life that we might live with urgency and confess with boldness the gospel of Jesus Christ in a world that longs, that longs for us to be independent from these things. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Eternal Father, give us strength to see the truths of this text. Give us the heart to live them out in a world that is challenging to us, Father. And by way of your Holy Spirit, inflame us for the next generation, that we may live with a, with a life that is, that is called to grab hold of eternity here. We know that this is made, way, made possible by the way of Christ Jesus, who is our strength. He's not only our example, Father, he is the one that we heard beautifully in the announcements that is stands, he's, our sin is imputed to him. And so I'm thankful for that, and I'm thankful that it is through him at this very moment that we can pray this prayer in Jesus' name.